Hi, my name is Matt Jarbo. Welcome back to Podio Commentary. Today is episode number 23, and we're going to be diving into the 2013 American thriller Prisoners. If you don't know about this movie, you should. It's, it's really good. It caught me by surprise. It opened up on September 20th, 2013, so it is almost 10 years old, and it's one that often gets overlooked, I think, by a lot of people, especially by those who are fans of Denis Veneuve, the uh, director of the movie. He also did Blade Runner and Sicario and Dune and the upcoming Dune 2. If you know anything about sci-fi, you know who this guy is. If you're a cinephile, you know who he is. You know what he can do. And this one, man, my God, like this was, you know, my first interaction with him outside of Blade Runner and Dune. I haven't seen Arrival or Sicario, so I wasn't too sure how he would handle the kind of drama that this movie has, but man, it's, uh, it kept me on the edge of my seat and we're going to be diving in. If you don't know anything about this movie, let me just quickly fill you in. For one, it's on Netflix. Go give it a watch. It's absolutely worth your time. But this movie stars Hugh Jackman as Keller Dover, a father whose young daughter and neighbor are abducted. And Jake Gyllenhaal plays Detective Loki, who is assigned to investigate the case. Right off the bat, the names are kind of weird to me. I'm not going to lie. Detective Loki. Maybe it's because I'm just a huge fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that this just felt out of place. But then again, this movie did come out two years after Tom Hiddleston took over the role or really started the role in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But this movie really is all about Dover's desperate search for his missing children, as well as Loki's efforts to find the perpetrator and bring them to justice. As the investigation progresses, the two men become increasingly obsessed with finding the missing kids and will really stop at nothing to bring them home, even if it kind of means breaking the law and going against their own moral code. One, way more than the other, but still the other one, you know, skirts around the issues where necessary. And again, this is, I just, I can't speak highly enough of this movie. It like kind of like broke me on a human level. So let me explain for one. And I've mentioned this before, and I'll absolutely mention this multiple times. I have kids. I have two daughters. So two girls being kidnapped in this movie and then held and like a father's desperate attempt to try to find them especially when it's aided by Hugh Jackman giving what I think is a career defining performance and, and like all the red tape and everything else that goes along with, with conducting these investigations to make sure that they're, you know, maintained by the rule of law and stuff. It just, it just keeps you on the edge of your seat. Two and a half hours. This thing could have easily been three hours. And I think in some, in some ways it probably actually should have been because there's a couple little plot points that kind of, don't really, I feel, get fleshed out to the degree that they need to be. But at the same time, it also doesn't really, you know, it doesn't, I don't, I don't want to say it doesn't really matter, but I feel like they they kind of skipped over some of the stuff with the conclusion. But let's kick this thing off by talking about how it got made. And we're going to start by talking about the writer and the director team. Now, we already know that Denis Villeneuve directed the film, but the movie was written by Aaron Guzikowski. And this is where it gets a little bit interesting because up until this point in time, his only feature film credit was 2012's Contraband starring Mark Wahlberg. And most recently, he was the creator of the short-lived but very well-loved Raised by Wolves over there on HBO Max. And if you are a fan of Raised by Wolves, I never saw the show, but I heard it was hardcore sci-fi backed by Ridley Scott. A lot of people really liked it. 
HBO is just a mess. So there's that. But then going over and talking about Denny, he also has gone on to do uh, Sicario in 2015. This was actually his first, I think, big studio film, at least in the States, not out of Canada where he's from, as well as uh, going on to do Arrival. And then, of course, Blade Runner 2049 Sicario Arrival in Blade Runner. It came out 2015, 2016 and 2017. That is just like banger after banger after banger. This guy was able to knock out. And then now he, of course, is getting Dune Part 2 off the ground, which is just something I'm super excited for this year. And he was ultimately awarded the prize of Director of the Decade by the Hollywood Critics Association in December of 2019. They might be embroiled in their own little controversy right now, so definitely, like, take that with a grain of salt. But still, there's no denying that Denis is just an amazing director. And seeing him go this hard on just a very human drama really, I think, like set the stage for the sci-fi films that he's been tackling since then. Although, like I said, I still need to see Sicario and it's been highly, um, highly recommended to me. So, all right, let's talk about how this movie got made. This is always my favorite part of the patio commentary because I, I just love knowing the history of these movies. So Guzikowski wrote the script based on a short story he also wrote about a father whose kid was hit in a hit and run. And then he got the driver and put that guy in a well in his backyard. The short was partially inspired by Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. Also, and I can't find like a lot of information on this. Like there's been a lot of speculation online. It's been talked about. But apparently the movie was also inspired by the true story of a child abduction and murder that happened in Quebec back in 2003. So here's that story. And you might notice a similar name, which is one of the reasons why I feel it may not be as connected as people are trying to claim. But this is what the Internet has to say. I got to kind of roll with it. So back on May 12th, 2003, 10 year old Holly Maria Jones was kidnapped, assaulted and strangled by Michael Briere of Toronto, Canada. He then dismembered her body and attempted to discard it in the Toronto Harbor. Her killer was caught pleaded guilty, and received an automatic life sentence with no chance of parole until 2028, which I don't think he's going to get. That's cup in five years. That's kind of creepy to me, to be honest with you. Like, I don't want that guy back on the streets of Toronto. I'm nowhere near Toronto, and I don't want that guy back on the streets. But that apparently is what kind of helped inspire the idea here. It's like, what would happen if your kid was kidnapped? And the father literally breaking every moral code in the book to bring the girls home and to bring the killer to justice. It's very morally ambiguous, as I previously mentioned, and I think it works really well for the story. And that's, again, coming at it from being a dad. Yeah. Like, what would you do? You know, how would you approach the situation? Believe me, those thoughts were running through my head as I was watching this movie last night. But anyway, according to Guzikowski, Mark Wahlberg was the first person to champion that. And then after the stamp of approval, everything got more and more attention. He actually ended up writing Prisoners as a spec script. And without Wahlberg, Prisoners and Guzikowski's career would not have blossomed in the way that it had. According to Guzikowski, he says he was totally pivotal, this being Mark Wahlberg, in getting the film made. That endorsement helped it get it around. 
Now, Mark Wahlberg, I do believe at some point was supposed to be attached to the role. They'd actually met on 2012's Contraband, which is how the whole story came to be. If you've ever seen Contraband, I watched it once when it came out in theaters. It was okay. I remember being okay. Kind of an odd concept, but you know, I mean, it was it was a dramatic enough thriller, I think, for Mark Wahlberg at the time. But Guzikowski definitely brought a lot more passion to the script for prisoners than Contraband. Contraband was rather paint by numbers. Again, like, you know, these these celebrities like Mark Wahlberg, you don't really expect them to kind of like color outside the lines too often. This was one that was meant to just kind of be a payday and a trip to Panama, so to speak. But Prisoners was definitely a passion project. And even though the original idea was about a father who put a hit and run driver in the well in his backyard, Prisoners did get altered enough to be completely different, but still maintain that morally ambiguous idea that's part of this thriller. And when they got the script written, it ended up becoming something known as a two-hander or a two-character movie. Originally, it was supposed to focus on just Hugh Jackman's character as he goes and he tries to solve the disappearance of his daughter and his neighbor's kid, but then they decided to have a second character, like a second main character, which would be Detective Loki, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, in order to really focus on the interactions and relationships between those two main characters, which happened pretty well, I would argue. Um, obviously like, I think as just the audience goes, like you want to see what Hugh Jackman is going to do to the bad guy. You also want to see whether or not the detective is going to catch him and then look the other way. And I think that's something that a lot of people were kind of teetering on while watching the movie. And, and the movie does a really good job of, of solidifying that concept, right? Of making you really question just where things are going to go. And quite frankly, how far things are going to go. Now, these two-hander movies uh, generally have a strong emphasis on dialogue and character development as they typically explore the dynamics of the relationship between the two main characters as they navigate this particular conflict. When you're watching this movie, again, like the the investigation that Loki has was really reminding me quite a bit. I know it's going to sound weird. It's reminding me quite a bit of David Fincher's Zodiac because Robert Graysmith, who wrote the book that the movie is based on, that Jake Gyllenhaal, the character he's playing, it feels kind of similar. And I'll dive into that as we get into the movie. But I, I don't mind that. That didn't bother me. All it made me want to do was go find my copy of Zodiac and pop it in right after watching this one. The problem, though, is that Zodiac, like Prisoners, super long movie, and my kids had school in the morning and it was already after 2 a.m. and I needed to get some sleep. But... But going back to the whole two-hander thing here, just to give you another idea of this, uh, you can have different varieties of genres like comedy, thriller, drama. They often rely on the performances of the two lead actors in order to drive the story and engage the audience. Some examples of this are The Shawshank Redemption and Thelma and Louise. And those are great examples of those. And those are also both fantastic movies. So we don't always have to have just one main character. You can have two relative main characters that their interactions very much drive the story. Shawshank Redemption is definitely about Andy Dufresne, but Red plays a very instrumental part to where we do get a perceptive shift at the end of the movie, but it's fine because we've already been following along his journey anyway throughout the 19 years that those two guys were at prison together. And yes, I will do a patio commentary on Shawshank Redemption. The Mist is next week. Shawshank will probably be down the road, but man, 
The Mist, I can't wait to talk about that one. Again, like even this one is, is so much fun to talk about. So looking into the history of this movie, trying to figure out exactly how Denny came on board to the project, I, I can't really like find that information out. But I know that when he came on board, that is when he was able to get Jake Gyllenhaal on board as Detective Loki, as the two had previously worked together on a small Canadian indie film called Enemy. And they just got along really well, and he was able to get him on board. Hugh Jackman, on the other hand, had apparently been circling the project for a while before Denny signed on. And I'll say this, like... It takes a really good director to draw out a magnificent performance from your from your talent. And and Denis was able to draw out a performance from Hugh Jackman that was just like guttural in a lot of ways. Like there is like the scene when they're in the car, uh, Loki and uh and uh Dover are in the car and you know Dover's trying to like push you know he's trying to to deflect the investigation that he thinks that you know uh, that that loki's on to right like he thinks loki's on to him knows what he's up to he puts on this performance where he like he starts beating the dash of the car and he's swearing up a storm and he's like freaking out and i was like oh my god like i was like welling up because i there was so much frustration and rage and anger and you're like holy crap he's gonna go full berserker mode on 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 mysterio right now it's gonna be crazy but it was such a, a compelling scene that really worked to like sell the narrative because you're you're kind of like rooting for him but at the same time you're like i don't know if should i root for you to kidnap this person you think kidnapped your daughter and like torture them to get the information it's just especially this person having mental uh you know deficiencies and stuff it's like, oh, man, this movie really does make you think it's pretty crazy. But when it came to Denis Villeneuve, he actually really wanted to dive into character dramas. This is something he was anxious to do. And I think it really serves uh, his future filmmaking work uh, very well. So in a quote here, he says, I wanted the camera work to focus on the intimacy and drama instead of the trailer elements. The trailer elements were already so strong in the script. So in order to find that intimacy, and again, this movie is, is very intimate in a number of ways. This is where they decided to go and make it a two and a half hour long movie that I still feel could have easily been longer. Now, for the movie requiring such a length, it needed to have those moments with these characters where they are allowed to breathe and chew the scenery and really just get in to the emotion. Uh, the 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 fear, the unknown, the panic, the desperation, the anger, the frustration, the rage, everything else that they that they all espouse in this movie just through a, just through different ways is so fascinating. And it needed to be that long in order to let like Viola Davis and Terrence Howard and Maria Bello really just kind of like get into it. I think Maria Bello was maybe like largely underutilized, but I understand the necessity of her character of like the mother who's just hysterical and instead of really like you know dealing with her emotions she chooses to just numb herself with painkillers and sleep medication in order to in order just to like cope and again i don't fault her at all and then everything falls on the dad who believes himself to be the family protector you can argue potentially like toxic masculinity is something that could be brought up in regards to the conversation about the psychology of Hugh Jackman's character, but you're not really going to find anyone 
who's going to watch this and really want to go down that particular conversational path. I'm just saying it's like on the internet specifically, you're, you're not going to be able to go like, was it right for him to do this because of toxic masculinity? And people are like, oh, man, his kids were kidnapped. What do you want? Again, it's like so much there to unwrap, so much there to unfold. This movie is very much an onion and it's an onion in a very fantastic sort of way. <laughs> anyway. So the great thing about this, though, is that Warner Brothers uh, was absolutely on board with making this film the way that Denny wanted it to. Now, this is you got to understand, this is like 2012, 2011, 2012, 2013 Warner Brothers. Completely different time. All right. I think Jeff Robinov was in charge of the studio at the time. This was like right before the AT&T purchase was happening. Um, the, uh, the, yeah, like the first, no, no, it was, what was the other one? Time Warner had bought them, I think, whatever. They had one merger at the time and they, you know, they were still a filmmaker driven studio and they knew that they had massive market dominance at the time. And, and now all of that goodwill is gone and I'm surprised Denny is still hanging out with them to do Dune, but I think that's largely a legendary production situation where they've got his back you know, good guy, Thomas Toll and all that jazz. But anyway, uh, Warner's was very supportive and that's great because the movie we got was absolutely wonderful. And this also began, uh, Denny's string of collaborations with one Roger Deakins, the celebrated British cinematographer who finally got best cinematography at the Academy Awards for Blade Runner 2049 a couple of years later when clearly he needed it. He deserved it for a skyfall back in 2012. But man, Deacons is a fantastic cinematographer and him working with Denny is a, is a match made in heaven in regards to their work dynamic. Uh, his, his touch, I will fully admit is a little bit missed on Dune, but at the same time, it's still, it's, it's, it's a fantastic movie, but man, just, I want those guys to work together again, a hundred percent. So now when they got this whole thing ready to go, I think the budget for the movie was about $48 million. They decided to shoot this thing February 2013 and have it ready for release seven months later. The beautiful thing about this particular movie is there's not a lot of visual effects that are needed to be added. Maybe some blood here and there, you know, but it's it's really small. They shot it in Georgia. The, the movie didn't look like it was shot in any major cities. It was kind of a rural community. They played up a lot of like the abandoned side of it, to be fair. There wasn't a lot of like, from what I could gather while watching it, there, there wasn't really a lot of like extras. There wasn't a lot of really big scenes outside of a couple, but really it was just so intimate and followed these characters in such a way that was compelling and even made you kind of question every once in a while, like where the perspective was going, because there's a couple times where it shifts to another character and it makes sense as you're watching like at, when you get to the end it makes a lot of sense why they did it like that but when it happens you're just like okay what is this leading to right what what's going on with this here so let's get into the story let me give my my analysis my discussion of the plot this movie kind of broke me i'll fully admit right it made me it made me anxious it made me rageful for what I was watching on screen. Cause like I couldn't do anything to help Keller Dover. I couldn't do anything to help Hugh Jackman. I just wanted to go out and like hug my kids because the movie starts on Thanksgiving. 
right? The Dover family heads over uh, to their neighbor's house, so Viola Davis, Terrence Howard. They're, they're best friends. Their kids are best friends. The daughters want to go play. Uh, they go play outside. There's this, you know, RV that we see, this, this very menacing, ominous looking RV. We already know something bad is there. And then they go and they disappear. But they immediately call out the RV and they immediately are able to get that information to the cops and the cops through Detective Loki. Uh, find them, find the RV. And then end up apprehending Alex Jones. Now, the name now in 2023 is obviously synonymous with a crazy conspiracy theorist. So it's, it's one of the weirder things with watching this specific movie, having the character be known as Alex Jones. But when you get towards the end of it, you start to realize, oh, wait, it's just like a generic sounding name, which is why it was needed. So during the process of trying to figure out where the girls are, obviously Dover and the families, they're, you know, they're desperate to get information. But now it goes to Loki to start conducting the investigation and to figure things out. And the chief of police seems to kind of like not care. Right. And I, I that really bothered me because he's kind of up Loki's ass a little bit. But he knows that Loki is like the only detective that they've got working on this. And he just kind of like, you know, I feel like he wants to kneecap him every once in a while because he kind of gets in the way. But then again, in these stories, these kind of obstacles are already going to have to be there. So having just like bureaucratical incompetence is one that just makes a lot of sense. But what he does, he starts to track, he goes through the playbook, right? They capture the guy. They can't find any information on him. Like there's no fibers, no fingerprints, no nothing. They don't. So he doesn't look like he did it. But they're like, okay, let's start looking up sex offenders. And this is what takes him to a priest's house, right? A former priest named Patrick Dunn, who when he goes over and he investigates, he sees that Dunn is blacked out on the floor. That gives him probable cause to enter into the house. And then again, morally ambiguous, where he goes, uh, can I search your house? And the guy's just snoring. He's like, yeah, it's not saying no. But as he's looking around, he sees that the refrigerator is out of place. And when he moves the refrigerator, he finds a hidden cellar and down in the cellar is the bounded corpse of an unidentified man. But the unidentified man is wearing this very, very, very unique medallion. And I'm watching that. I'm all like, for one, when you look at like the marketing of the movie, it's some of the wall, like Google, like prisoners wallpaper, you know, and you'll see the medallion, like the maze on the medallion and how like. That's a key part of the marketing. That's a key part of everything. And you're just like, okay, so obviously that's important, you know? And if you've ever watched, it's, it's not, I don't know if I'd call it a MacGuffin, but maybe it is in the way that it's kind of designed, like, you know, it's designed to come back later on. I don't know what the term for that is. Like I'm, I'm a little lost on some of my, my, my filmmaking terminology at this point, I've been removed from the game as long as I have been. But what was really fascinating about that scene overall was the fact that when they talked to the priest, the priest confesses the killing the guy because this guy came to him to confess the murder of 16 kids. Now, I don't fully remember if the priest was like this guy was confessing to, to get away with it. But ultimately, the former priest who was his own sex offender killed this guy. So I'm, I, I mean, look. 
to me, that's kind of a weird story element, right? Like, so you have a former priest who was a convicted pedophile, most likely. Okay. Uh, former sex offender, or he is a sex offender on the list. So the likelihood of him, you know, the whole Catholic priest stereotype definitely is ringing true here. Some other pedophile goes to him or child killer goes to him and says, hey, man, you know, I've murdered like 16 kids. And then that guy kills him. I like I was it jealousy. Was it just like was it just to get him off the street? Was he just knew that there would be no way to ever stop this guy? It was an interesting plot point, to say the very least, but it also kind of felt a little underdeveloped and undercooked. It was a way to kind of get from point A to point B, basically. But it was cool nonetheless. Like, oh, that's fucked up, man. That's crazy. But then they still have to let Alex go. And so this is where, again, bureaucratical nonsense gets in the way. And, you know, Keller goes over there. I love this scene because Hugh Jackman, like, pulls up and he storms over and he's like, where are my kids? You know? And, and he grabs Alex and Alex just says, they didn't cry till I left them. But he says it so quietly that only Hugh Jackman hears him and nobody else wants to believe him. But because Hugh Jackman assaulted him and it's public and there is media there, they obviously are like going to have a little bit of trouble with this. But this is what pushes Hugh Jackman to go do what he's going to go do. So like the thing is, like, he's just he's he's furious because he's trying to tell the police this is what he said to me this is what's going on he says they didn't cry till i left them go arrest him torture him beat the crap out of him do whatever you need to do get it done he's confessing basically and they're like look we don't have the evidence for it and that again that's part of that red tape that happens with these investigations but look again these investigations require that kind of red tape in order to make sure that the right person is captured that the right person is brought to justice and this movie starts to kind of mess with that as we start getting introduced to another character right a guy by the name of bob taylor who shows up at a vigil candlelight vigil for the missing girls is spotted by loki kind of reaching out for this little stuffed elephant and like looking all creepy and when that happens, like they go into this chase, Loki ends up getting jumped. The guy gets away, but then Loki's like, okay, clearly this guy was there. He knows something or he's into something. And now we have another suspect at the same time. Hugh Jackman is kidnapping Alex after we watch him, like strangle the dog. He's out walking the dog, right? He's out walking the dog. So we see him literally pick the dog up by the collar, start choking the dog out for like 30 seconds, doesn't kill the dog, but then starts to walk off with it, like showcasing homicidal instinct or homicidal tendencies. And that is definitely a way for us as the audience to convey a couple of different emotions here. One, horror at the sound of the dog squealing, obviously. Two, we're like, this guy, this guy did it. This guy effing did it. Like we're, that is meant to solidify that he is the killer. And then he starts to sing the Jingle Bells version of the Batman song, right? Or the Batman version of the Jingle Bell song, which is what the girl sang at the beginning of the movie. So now it's like all eyes are on him. hundred percent. Keller knows that it's him, knows that he knows something and he's going to get that information. So he pulls up a gun, grabs the guy and locks him up in the bathroom of an apartment building where his father had owned it. And then, you know, 
killed himself uh, there. Or maybe it was just like a, a house, but it looked like it was an apartment building. Either way, it was abandoned. And like, you know, he goes and he brings in the neighbor played by Terrence Howard. And it's so interesting. I just want to point this out. It's so interesting with Terrence Howard's character that like Terrence Howard doesn't come across as kind of like a low key dude. He never really comes across as the kind of guy you're just like not going to be like willing to step up and throw down. You know what I mean? But here he's very meek. He, he is very kind of like milk toast and banal. He just kind of like goes with it. His wife clearly is the one more in charge. He's the laid back one, but like he gets brought in to torture Alex to, to find out where the girls are. And he's having so many conflicted emotions with that. Like he wants to, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to screw things up. He doesn't want the girls to die. It's such a, it was such a, a good nuanced performance on Terrence Howard's part. And one of the things I enjoyed is like when he comes back and you know, he's going to crack, right? Like, you know, he's going to crack the Viola Davis. And what I loved about it is like, she shows up on, on Hugh Jackman's door and she basically, she's got that Amanda Waller look going on, you know, she's pissed. And then she's like, show him to me, you know? And they're like, Oh, she's going to get in on this shit. Oh, she's going to mess this guy up. But then her motherly, she tries to play the motherly instinct card and it fails. And then, yeah, at that point, you know, he gets, he just gets beat to hell. Like he's beat to hell already. He is, I mean, it is pretty violent what they did to this guy. They don't, they don't actually like show it. They actually had to trim down the torture scene in order to be able to get an R rating. Otherwise it would have been NC 17, to which case I say release the, you know, the Denny cut. All right, let me see this effort. (laughs) I want to see it crazy, but it's just like, there's so much anger. And there's so much like rage in those scenes. And you're just like, oh my God, like you want to be there. Like, yeah, you want to just beat it out of this guy. And then of course, as Loki starts to kind of figure out who Bob Taylor is, he tracks him back to his house. Uh, You know, he, he arrests Taylor for trying to run. They find all of these like snakes. They find all of these drawings of the maze on the wall. They find bloody uh, children's clothing. And you think you think that this is him, right? And this, of course, is is the whole trick. You think that Bob Taylor is the guy. And even I'm thinking to myself, like, holy crap, did they get the wrong guy? Like, holy crap, how are they going to, like, how are they going to reconcile the problem boarded up in a, in a bathroom in an abandoned apartment building, right? Like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? You know, and I'm trying to think, I, I literally, I was like, oh, my God, they messed up so bad. Right. Like, how are they going to justify this? How are they going to fix this? How is this going to have a semblance of a happy ending? Are the girls alive? Are the girls dead? They, they insinuate all that stuff. But what's crazy about it, though, is after Bob commits suicide, which was just wild in and of itself, because he was able to get an officer's pistol and then, you know, kill himself and stuff. They come to find out that, like, no, this guy wasn't. He wasn't the killer. If anything. And I'm a big fan of true crime podcasts. If anything, this guy was someone obsessed with true crime. He was actually one of the kids who was kidnapped by the same people who kidnapped the girls and had got away. And that's where that he had seen that medallion that was on the dead guy in the basement. And that's where the mazes come from. And so he got away. And so he then found a book about the, the, the missing kids or this, this guy, the invisible man, so to speak. And started trying to solve this case himself, being so just 
effed up by his own experiences by being kidnapped by these people. You know, and then it's like all of a sudden, Joy, the younger uh, Terrence Howard's daughter, gets out. She had makes the comment that she was that, you know, that that Dover was there when she got away and he realizes that it's not Alex's. It's not Alex who did it. It's Alex's uh, aunt, Holly Jones, the same name of the little girl who was murdered in 2003 in Quebec, which if that is true, that those names, I guess that's a little bit weird for me. That's a little sus in my opinion. But anyway, like, you know, he, he goes over there and he's, he's going to go try to kill her. She ends up getting the upper hand on him. She shoots him in the leg, puts him underneath the, uh, the ground in this pit where she's kept many other kids over the years. And she's like, look, I'm going to go kill your daughter and I'm going to dump her body in here with you tomorrow. And you're going to go insane. And her reasoning for everything she was doing, I thought, again, this is kind of like, I feel like this is where they kind of dropped the ball for like a big dramatic reveal. So it's like they had lost their son to cancer. As parents, there was rage and they wanted other people to feel that rage. Obviously, it falls in line thematically with like how everyone else is kind of a prisoner. They were a prisoner to their rage. Hugh Jackman was a prisoner to his rage, you know, all that stuff, right? There's a lot of, a lot of the themes, a lot of that kind of things happening, but it's like, you know, so then they start kidnapping and killing kids in order to make the parents like become the devil through rage. It doesn't, I mean, it kind of like the motivation. I understand the execution a little bit on the weak side, in my opinion. But what's interesting though, is at this point, you start to kind of realize that like the guy, the body of the dude in the basement was her husband who disappeared years earlier and she didn't know where he went. So she was still kidnapping kids and everything else. But then, but then also Alex, you come to find out is a boy who was kidnapped 26 years earlier by, by this couple and they didn't kill him. This was the first kid that they took. They didn't kill him. They brainwashed him, made him think that, you know, these were his relatives take on his, you know, their name. Somehow get him a driver's license, which I thought was a little bit weird. And then from there, they just like, you know, they kept him, but they killed all these other kids and he knew about it. He didn't kill the kids, but he was fully aware of what was going on. But, but because he has the intelligence of like a 10 year old, you know, it's crazy. And then, you know, the finale I thought was fantastic with Loki showing up, them getting into a bit of a shootout, him getting shot in the side of the head, like it grazing his head. Then trying to get Hannah to the hospital as blood is dripping into his eye, causing him to have trouble seeing as a snow flurry is coming out. That scene was so freaking intense. Oh, my God. Him driving the car was such an, a massively intense scene. I was like, I was like gripping the side of my bed. I'm like, you know, like, ah, what's going to happen? It was so intense. And then they say, no, I'm like, Hugh Jackman is like, he's in the hole. He's alive. He's down there. There's a whistle. He could, you know, and then the, the cops are like, he, he are, are trying to you know, dig up what's going on. They're trying to ex excavate. Everything is frozen over. And then at the very end of the movie, you're thinking, okay, he's probably down there. He's going to die in the hole, the hole that he kind of put himself in. And because of everything he had done, you know, karma, comeuppance, whatever irony. And then you, Loki starts hearing the whistles and that's where it cuts to black. And I'm like, okay, that's where the movie's over. Obviously trying to imply some semblance of a happy ending. The problem with that, as I mentioned before, there is a couple little weird plot details. One, Terrence Howard, Viola Davis, fully aware that Alex Jones was caught and tortured. And when they're in the hospital with their kid, they make no like there's no look at each other. 
There's no like acknowledgement between them. There's no like tension of like, oh, are we going to be caught? Is that going to happen next? None of that stuff. They don't do any of that stuff. And I thought that was like, oh my God, you guys are complicit with like, with, with like kidnapping and, and torture, you know, forced imprisonment. Like this is some bad stuff here. But obviously all the blame is going to go over to uh, Hugh Jackman, which makes all the sense, right? But then it's like, okay, so well, like what happens at the end? We don't know. It's, it's left to, to be ambiguous. Is, you know, is Loki going to pull him out of the hole? And help him, you know, get away with it all. Like, what's going to happen? We don't know. But what we do know is that everyone's alive. With the exception of Holly Jones. And we also found out that, you know, Alex, under the real name Billy, is now back with his family after 26 years. He's been reunited. So there's that. I'm like, oh my God, civil litigation is incoming. Civil litigation, friends, is incoming. But the movie just, it, man, it just messed me up. Like, again, I saw this, like, it ended at, like, 1.30, 1.45 in the morning for me. And I was like, I got to go to bed, but it just kept me going here. And I'm happy to see that critics actually feel very similarly to, to what I do. So when this movie dropped, the movie actually did pretty well in Rotten Tomatoes. It got an 80% based on about 298 reviews with an average rating of 7.2 out of 10. The general consensus is that it's grim, but engrossing. Prisoners underscores the primal fear of parental loss with solid acting and a perfectly suspenseful atmosphere. It's so good. Like, it's so good. I can't recommend this movie enough, to be fair. Uh, audiences, on the other hand, gave it a B plus on the cinema score. And I find that to be interesting because I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like, this movie would, would elicit a lot out of parents, but a B plus? That's kind of odd. However, Warner Brothers looked at that same number and went, no, 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 I'm Newton bitter. And they asked for a recount. They actually went to CinemaScore and they're like, hold on, I think this, I think this information is false. I think the election has been rigged. Can you, can you provide a recount? And they did. They actually recounted and came back with an overall score of an A-, minus, which is perfectly acceptable. It's so weird on a CinemaScore level, B plus to an A-, minus. but there we go. Now, ultimately on the box office front, the movie did do okay. It grossed over $122 million at the worldwide box office on that $46 million. I said 48 earlier, it was 46. And even though it was praised by critics and audiences for the performances, it didn't do as well as I thought it would. It might just be the fact that it came when it came out, the length of time, the subject matter. I do think that a lot of people have found this on home video or on streaming. Because when I first came across this in order to like prep for this episode, I think Prisoners was like, number one or number two on Netflix, meaning a lot of people are watching it, which is great. I love it. It's one of the things with this, with this podcast, I want to go back and look at like, you know, older films that are maybe now finding a bit newer of an audience because of streaming. And uh, it's good because look, uh, Prisoners is definitely a critically acclaimed film. It launched the career of Denis Villeneuve and uh, it's just, it's like, I, I will watch it again. It's one of those ones where like pairing it with Zodiac is like a perfect kind of true crime night, in my opinion, because both movies are beautifully suspenseful, starring the same guy, by the way, but they're beautifully suspenseful. They're beautifully shot. And they just encapsulate different ideas, but very similar in theme. It's just, yeah, that's a good, that's a good double feature for me, I, I should say. So to wrap up my thoughts on the movie, I've been praising it all the way through. I, again, I have a couple minor nitpicks with the film overall. 
uh, just with like some of the plot stuff to kind of get from point A to point B. I would have liked there to have been more of an investigation into like what the maze was, who, who the, the, the guy who the priest killed, why the priest really killed the guy, like really dive into some of those B story plot lines or BCD plot lines and expand upon them. And maybe just maybe we can kind of bully uh, Guzikowski into turning it into a novel with those expanded plot lines discussed so we can then get the full scope of everything this movie has going for. It's also possible that could be in the shooting script, which then I would love to go and find that and really get those questions answered because while they aren't like you could argue essential to the overall plot, they are definitely pieces of a puzzle that when you get, when you would have that full puzzle finished, you would then get the full view. But here there's just a couple little pieces missing. It doesn't delineate or distract but it, it does kind of rub away some of the shine. If I'm, It's a weird analogy. What can I say? But at the end of it, man, yeah, really like the movie. Uh, can't recommend it enough. Would love to know your thoughts about this. So if you guys are listening to this on YouTube, thank you so much for listening to the Podio Commentary channel. Be sure to like the video, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment. If you're listening to this wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts now, whatever, uh, Google, uh, you know, whatever. Be sure to leave a like, leave a review where you can. You guys can find me on Twitter at Patio Commentary. And there is a Discord as well, which will be linked on the YouTube video. Uh, I, I got to build a website and do all that jazz. And if you like uh, the show and you want to support it, patreon.com forward slash Matt Jarbo. New perks will be being, uh, tiers will be added, especially if you want to recommend movies you want me to dive into. That will be something available as well. I'll talk to you guys next week for The Mist. Have yourself a great day. Thank you again for watching and peace out.